Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Corey Allen. And Corey is somebody who does a lot of different things, but seemingly they all connect. He's a podcast host, he's an author, he's an audio engineer, and he's a meditator and a meditation coach. And what I love about Corey is just the calmness and his presence of being is something I could even feel from just being on the Zoom or the Riverside with him online. I wasn't in the same physical presence as him, but I was able to feel some sense of peace from just being in his presence. And I really think he has a gift, and I think that's a result of the deep meditation he's done, or perhaps just from his past experiences. So because of that, I really enjoyed this. And if you're a meditator or somebody who's looking for deeper self-awareness or deeper knowledge of this whole human experience, I think you're going to enjoy this episode with Corian. So if you do, please share it with somebody you think would enjoy it as well. And I'm looking forward to your thoughts about this episode with Corey Allen. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Corey, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, I'm really excited because I was running late and... What, what's so funny is that you you were in my ears as I was on a walk because I'm, I'm listening to you, listening to different things you said, preparing for the interview. And then I was in the shower and I said to myself, I'm running late. And I was like, you know, why running late? Why not walking late? And as it's happened to turn out, I was on time. And I think part of the reason I was on time is because I was walking late. And I think that that is a result, that reframe is a result of you. And so I I wanted to share that with people listening and I wanted to share that with you as well. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. I mean, you know, any, any way that you can change the way that you're perceiving what you're experiencing in the moment to shake off the story of anxiety and the narrative that you've bought into and kind of re-address and reconnect with actually what is happening in front of you as opposed to what you're, you know, shooting and placing upon it, then, hey, you know, that's, those things are invaluable, man. I'm glad it, whatever it was, I'm glad it helped. And also when you were saying you were, you were listening to something I said, I thought, like, God, I wonder what it could have been. <laughs> There's no telling. <laughs> could have gone a lot of directions. <laughs> no, I mean, I like to listen to the voice of the guest to prepare myself for the person that you're about to speak to and to research and to learn more about you. And, you know, I got a real sense of calmness. And I'm just curious, Are you, have you always been this calm, this peaceful, this, this way about you? Have you always had this since you were a little child? I'm just dead inside. It's no, no. no. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've always been um, pretty calm, you know, uh, and and whatever. I mean, it, some of that stuff. I, I think that any you know individuals 
personality traits are a mixture of nature and nurture. And in some cases, that nurture, of course, extends to one's own self-nurturing. You know, like, what do you do to yourself to change who you are and how you think? Um, and then also some of it's environmental, some of it's just sort of the happenstance of genetics and whatever. Um, but yeah, I've always been really calm um, and whatever, kind of like I joke about how I uh, have, <laughs> I, like, I'm, I look, whenever I'm moving, I look like I'm sort of underwater, like in half slow motion, you know? <laughs> um, and, and then as, a, as another joke, I, I think that my mom took uh, prescription pain medicines while I was, uh, while she was pregnant with me. So that probably has something to do with it too, you know? <laughs> wow. But uh, as a serious answer, um, yeah, I mean, I've always been externally calm, um, but whenever I was growing up, I had a, a lot of anxiety, you know, like a ton. It was re- almost disabilitating, um, just just freaking out, you know, all the time inside because my brain was processing so much um, and just getting real wound up, you know, and then I had a lot of environmental factors that were very uh, challenging and unconventional that I had to deal with, and it made it to where I had I was basically just like, a strange mixture of um, intellectual arrogance and emotional fear. Like, so I was battling the my emotional uh, stunted growth and the anxiety that was coming from that. That, which of course, that was you know in the relation in, in relationships and communication and even like reading social cues. I'm still not good at that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, that stuff just manifested a lot of anxiety. And then, you know, I tried to overcome it by feeling like I was smarter than anyone else. And of course, that's a very arrogant and narcissistic approach to life. Um, but fortunately, I got those two things to sort of work together as opposed to against each other. And that's whenever I was, you know, in, in my teens, I luckily, you know, started meditation, reading philosophy, Eastern and Western philosophy and psychology. And I begin to turn all of that um, force, uh, you know, anxiety has a lot of energy. Like it's, a, there's a lot coming through with it. There's a lot happening. And same thing with, you know, your, your mind, whenever it's fired up and, and happening as well. And then on top of that, a weird connection, um, sort of counterpoint to, the calm thing that you mentioned is that I did, I still do always have this thing. I don't really know what to call it. Like I call it the intensity. Um, like it's just like a lot coming through. Like I feel like, like it's almost like there's a lot of like weight pressing down on me or something. And it's like a force. Like I got to get it out. It's like in like a, and I don't mean anything metaphysical, but it just feels like this, like uh, this, a lot of like, Oh, I got to put it into something. That's why I work out every day, you know, because that's how I found. To, I used to put that in the books and stuff. And now I, I'm like, all right, this is I, I did that for a long time. And then I put that into, you know, because that working out really helps me stay uh, grounded, you know, and embodied as opposed to going off into which I've spent a lot of time there. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, so figuring, you know, figuring that out, I kind of figured out how to to put all that stuff into um you know, actually working at being calm, you know, truly, not just sort of externally uh, and uh, in a way against, you know, the, the environment does in. So I know you took Zoloft at 14 years old. And how, how do you know that? <laughs> I try to do my research here. <laughs> and you would spit it out. 
Yeah. And were you meditating at that point? What what made you spit it out? And how did that when did that stop? When did when were you like I can't use this or Take me through that process. Yeah. So it's it's a real, this is a window into some of the environmental factors I was telling you about earlier. Again, I'm just, imp- I'm, I guess I must have mentioned that somewhere, but that's just sort of a, such a bizarre, intimate detail. Um, so basically, uh, I was already, you know, I, I was, by the time I was like 12, I was really into like death metal and hip hop that was happening. This is 1994. So it was like the birth of like death metal and hip hop happening at once. I was 12 years old. It's perfect time to be alive, right? And so I'm like super into all of that. Um, I'm getting up to all sorts of other stuff. And I was, um, you know, definitely like not Los Angeles. I was like wearing all black, long hair, very like metal dude, uh, anti-authoritarian, you know, um, and all that. And so uh, I was really into like weird shit as well. Like I liked trying to find as much like as many, I don't know, just like, bizarre pieces of art or like, I just like things that like blew my mind and were like freaked me out, you know? And so I would seek them all the time and, um, like movies and, you know, just whatever, whatever it was I could find. It was crazy. Um, and so, so like, yeah. So at that time, lots of death metal and, and hip hop and whatever. Um, and then I, and so I was 12 years, yeah, 12, 13, getting into that. Um, I also was like, had started smoking weed around that time when I was 12. And, um, so among a bunch of other horrible things, I was, well, not horrible, but other things I was doing to, to my brain. Um, and, uh, and so what happened was that, you know, my mom used to go through my brother and I's rooms all the time, just as a general, I mean, there's the, uh, this, that could be a podcast in and of itself, but, um, you know, I guess boredom and looking for some type of weird emotional and, you know, blackmail or whatever, you know, that was happening. So she would always just go in through our shit, you know. Um, and so anyway, she went through, you know, the ramp. My, my brother and I used to um, just like joke about leaving notes in our dressers and under our beds about, like, hey, what's going on? What? Like, I don't know what you're trying to find, but, you know, anyway, so. Right. So when I was 14, then I basically um, came home one time and she's like, hey, do you want to go to the mall and like buy some, you know, clothes or whatever? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So I got in the car, we're driving and we pull up to this like this giant like psych ward in Austin. And she was like, I'm taking you to see a psychiatrist. And I was like, what for? And uh, we go in there and then. I go uh, into the the this office. It's very disorienting, and I'm scared and like freaked out because I was like lied to, you know, to get there. Um, I go in, and then there's a psychiatrist and uh, my mom, and she produces this like Manila envelope full of a bunch of stuff she'd collected from my room. Like I was trying to write like stories, draw things, and whatever. And it was all like crazy shit because I was trying to. My imagination was just like so. Um, it, it was just like an ocean, right? So I'm writing these like, you know, Lord of the Rings, you know, like death metal Lord of the Rings type of stuff and like illustrating them. And like, it's just a, you know, a artistic practice. And um, she's like, I found these very, I mean, they're pretty violent, you know, she's like, found all this stuff um, and whatever. 
And the psychiatrist was like, oh, well, you need to be an inpatient immediately. And I was like, what the fuck? So I go from there to like, he's like, okay, you know, like take him away, boys. And I go like, they take all my stuff. They start drawing blood. I'm put in this inpatient program with a bunch of people who most of them truly were like meant to be there. I mean, they were like, you know, had severe uh, mental uh, health issues um, that were like disruptive to their, their lives. Anyway, so I was in there and I was just sort of like, well, that, okay, so now what, right? Now what do I do? So I'm in there and I'm like, well, I mean, the only thing I can really do is show these people how well adjusted I am so that I can get out of here as quickly as possible because like I may be like weird, but I'm not, you know, but, you know, I'm not like hallucinating and having some type of psychotic break like this guy. Um, and you, of course, I saw all sorts of beautiful stuff in there, like people getting, you know, freaking out and losing their minds, like biting, you know, people that work there and then ripping them down and jamming needles into them to make them pass out and like putting them in clothes, you know, room. And they'd send you to your a room every night, you know, your room with no windows or clocks. So they're like, go into your room for 10 hours and you'd have no idea what time. I mean, you go crazy being in a mental institution, you know, um, it'll drive you crazy. Like, you know, it sounds bizarre, but anyway, so... The first, they started to um, just like with like zero in um, real investigation to the, the situation. They immediately are like Zoloft and a tranquilizer and something else, which you can't recall what it was. And so they're making like depre- depression zombies, you know, like in they're like manufacturing them in this place. But even at that age, um, I already was aware, you know, of like that that was not good. And I knew that like my brain chemistry it was changing rapidly because you're 14 years old and it's like, you're growing like, you know, exponentially at all times. And I thought, well, if this, if this thing changes your brain chemistry to make you think a different way, I don't want to add something that alters my brain chemistry whenever it's like emerging and like and growing at this moment. And like, I'm not trying to take pills just because, and I was also pissed off because I was in there, all those things. So what would happen is, yeah, they would, they would, you know, put those, uh, they would, you'd have to go to this window. They would make you, you know, put the, 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 the medication in your mouth and they would look in your mouth to make sure you swallowed it. But yeah, I would always just stick it in between my teeth and my cheeks and go to the bathroom and spit it in the toilet and flush it. So there was no, like nothing to be found. Like they couldn't find a stash of, of spit out. Um, but anyway, that's one of many delightful things that, that happened to me when I was uh, 14. Um, and I got out of there in like a week, you know, because I would wow. be talking to the therapist and the group sessions and just sort of like, yeah, I mean, this is uh, like, you know, <laughs> I don't know Crazy what's bunch. happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, man. So I that was my short-lived experience with it. And, you know, um, the only area, I mean, it's pretty sharp for a 14-year-old. The only area where I messed up was that like after five days – I told one of the people, I was like, I do feel better after taking the medication. And they're like, yeah, that takes like three months to actually start working. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, it must be the therapy then, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so, like, how does a situation like that, it sounds like a, a turbulent childhood or at least a turbulent time. How does that impact you today, if at all? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, experience like that and a whole, I mean, there's countless others that are similar to that. Um, they really helped me, well, they they forced me to 
um, realize what I think is really one of the, if, if not the most important thing that a person can realize whenever they're trying to just be a, a, a better human or a more self-aware human. And that was that our perception is subjective. And I realized that because of the emotional, you know, of us, and, and I, I realized that I didn't have the language for it, but I, you know, knew the concept. I could tell what I was experiencing. Um, and then later when I, I went on to, that's part of the reason that drew me to Western philosophy anyway, is because people like, you know, Husserl and so forth, these phenomenologists, that's like their whole thing um, to a degree. And, and of course, Nietzsche was like, you know, he was speaking my death metal language. So I love that. Um, but yeah, man, like, so basically having people telling you certain things about what was happening and what was, you know, happening in reality, what was happening around you, you know, what you were and weren't allowed to feel. Um, and then also sort of like love bombing and gaslighting and all that stuff. I just started slowly realizing like, oh, and then, you know, but my brother and I, like there would be, there was always multiple stories going on, you know, but not like we would communicate what we were being told, you know, from our parents to each other you know, but hey, yeah, it's interesting how these stories of what's happened and what is happening aren't aligning with each other. And we would always stay in close communication about that. And no matter, we actually had like this deal of like, no matter how mad we got at each other whenever we were younger and, you know, kids, we were like, okay, um, we got to like, no matter where it is, we got to still stay, you know, 100 on this communication thing because it's keeping it's keeping us safe, you know. Um and so that made me realize that, uh, yeah, that I started realizing, oh, hold on a second, like what the story in your mind and like your impression of what reality is, isn't necessarily the truth. It's just this reading of the world outside of your skin and, it, and your mind is filling in these gaps and like the information that you're told and the things that, you know, are manufactured to make you feel a certain way influence the projection of, you know, what you project in your mind onto reality and the way that you feel. And I begin to understand that intuitively. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember I was in my middle teen years. And so as I went on to um, begin, uh, you know, studying those things personally, just autodidactically, I began understanding the actual systems behind those things. But that is the most important, you know, I, I, the reason I say that's such an important thing to, to learn is because once you learn that your reality is subjective, then like, first off, just arguments and things like that, judge, I mean, judgments, like all that stuff just falls away, you know, because you just realize like, oh, right, we have two different points of view <laughs> and both of them are right to us and both of them are, are wrong, you know, to the the, uh, the world outside of either of us. And so you can work with that or you can work against that, you know. It seems like with the even with the pact with the brother, it was like your brother was a, a very much seeking truth is what you were after in that moment. And from my perspective as a meditator looking at you you're also trying to seek truth and that's a a line that runs throughout the course of your life do you think that how do you believe that by meditating by getting to know yourself you are in fact seeking truth oh yeah yeah internal and external i think that you know for me and remember again, um, this is like in the mid nineties. So there was no, like meditation was a different thing, you know, then it wasn't mm -hmm. as like, it's so omnipresent now, you know, it's yeah. just everywhere. But then, 
Um, there, well, first off, there was no Google, you know, <laughs> there was no YouTube. That's there a big no, one. <laughs> yeah. There were no smartphones, you know, and it was like, I basically learned stuff the old fashioned way of like finding a book and then they would, in a book, they would talk about other books and I'd go find those books. And then it would, and it was just, that was how, that was my search engine was, you know, <laughs> it's a little, so, pro- processing time was a little slower than, than Google, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I initially started it because I was so just like, um, so much suffering to where I was so unhappy and so like tense and like, and just, um, yeah, all, all the time. And so I was trying to just calm down. I knew I needed to calm down, you know? And so I started doing that with meditation just very simply, but the more I did it, the more I realized that like, Oh, hold on a second. This is like actually affecting other parts of my, of my life. And And, and then over time it became to where I was like, Oh, now I'm like, I'm like, uh, you know, like the times where I would have reacted in life to certain things, there's like a space between that and the experience, you know, uh, yes. and stuff like that. Um, but so as I, you know, probably four or five years in really of like meditating, just sort of my own DIY way, that's where I really started like uh, over that time, it became clearer and clearer that I, you know, the point of meditation, I guess, is like I was recognizing the meditator. And again, like I had no language for any of that. I was just trying to like read all this different mixture of like, you know, the densest, like I got a a really, you know, I was reading, I don't know how I even found these things. It's really, it was just the chance and the luck of what was around where I'd go to like a random bookstore. Like I was reading DT Suzuki and all these things, you know, even back then. And, um, then, you know, you know, like then the hippie philosophers like Alan Watts and, and even like Robert Anton Wilson or someone like that, um, or Ram Dass, you know, finding things like that and then mixing that with Western philosophy and trying to just figure out. And I started realizing like, hold on a second, there's like this agent in my mind. There's this observer that's observing my thoughts and I would just lay in my bed and like, actually, this is kind of a funny story is that whenever I was a teenager and I was trying to meditate, I would like lay on my bed and close my eyes and I would just breathe in and then breathe out and try and relax all the muscles in my body as much as I can. And every exhale, I'd relax like more and more and more and more. I'd try and see how like relaxed I could get until I felt like I was like floating. And I actually put this little exercise in my book because I just thought it was like a cool, you know, like grab, like a deep pull from my very first uh, meditation. And what happened was like, I would be meditating like that, just trying to see how relaxed I could get. And then I, uh, I I started like there came a point where I would open my eyes and I would look down at the wall and I would feel like the wall was the floor and I was stuck. Or no, yeah, the wall I was looking at while laying down was the floor and I was stuck to the wall and I'd be like, well, I'm like, and I feel like I'm like defying physics or something, but it was really just my brain like reorienting its self-understanding, you know? Um, and that's whenever I started observing like, oh, there's someone like watching the the facsimile of of what's happening in reality and I, that's when i started recognizing the meditator and i know it's a super long i'm mr long answer so i apologize but um at the at your question was like was it a, a you know an, a, a goal to find truth and that was the beginning of it the beginning of truth is realizing that you're the observer of your reality and the second part of that is realizing the true nature of reality which is objective reality unfettered by your own projections and your own, the, the delusion of your own perception. And wherever you find that, you know, 
a real connection with the observer awareness of just that you are this awareness that's a that's experiencing information going in through your sense doors, through your ears, your your nose, your mouth, your eyes, and so forth. And plus one, another sense door is your mind. You know, so the thoughts moving across the stage of your mind—that's another form of sense, sense consciousness. And you're behind all of that, observing all of that. Then you also begin to see, you know, the same. Uh, have the same type of clarity with objective reality where it's like, oh, right, everything I'm seeing is just, is really kind of this story, this impression, and whatever I'm putting onto it is really just my delusion. Um, then you mook those two things together, and that's ultimately enlightenment. And um, whenever, for example, Shogun Trumpa has a great quote where he says, enlightenment is the is the ego's biggest disappointment, you know, because there's all this stuff where people... They seek enlightenment, the idea of enlightenment. Often they don't even know what it is. They've read, you know, a meme and, or something, and they think that they have the sense of it. Um, and that adds a lot of confusion and extra suffering and extra delusion. But the inner, the enthusiasm, the spiritual enthusiasm that people have to seek that type of thing, is genuinely a, a, a great and wholesome type of pursuit. Um, but of course, what happens, particularly in Westernized culture, where individualism and uh, you know comparison and those things are so highlighted, where it's like you must be better than the next person and you must you know compare and whatever, whatever, like that can turn into this thing of like I'm going to get you know really far on the spiritual path so that I can feel better than all of my everyone around me, you know, <laughs> and that is that's just the pitfall that everyone goes through. I've certainly went through it. Um, but whenever you get break through that, hopefully, if you do keep going, um, then that experience I mentioned of the inner awareness and the outer awareness, uh, you know, connecting, um, it's really, it's very, very dry in a beautiful way, you know, and, um, people expect it to be something magical. It's like, well, it is magical. It's just not the type of magic you were looking for. <laughs> Interesting. That's fascinating. You know, you were, oh, there's so much I want to break down and go into. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, one thing you mentioned was about the, you set up this exercise when you're laying in bed and floating and it felt like you were floating. And it's fascinating because I don't remember where I read it, but I read that in order to help people who had PTSD go to sleep, one exercise they created was to lay on your back in your bed with your feet dangling off your bed mm, and laying mm -hmm. down and imagine you were floating in a river yeah and it and it just struck me i don't know where i came across that but i tried it a few times and it definitely worked and this has inspired me to do it again um nice. <laughs> why, why do you think something like that works to help people go to sleep yeah well the the foot on the ground thing my understanding is that that is because it 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 a lot of people, particularly who have PTSD, if they lay down, um, they'll start to feel disoriented because of their, their laying down. And so the equilibrium of laying down and feel, feeling like kind of ungrounded becomes very scary because you're like in oblivion. And when you're in like this sort of vacuum, then all the, you know, you're susceptible to uh, all of the thoughts coming through. Um, but having feet on the ground centers the sort of gyroscope of your body. So you feel your equilibrium is like soothed by knowing where the floor is, but then you're able to relax as well by laying down on the bed, um, which I, I think that that's, if I recall correctly, that's why that works. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, it helps people sleep because I mean, people are just, man, people are so uptight, you know, everyone is so wound up and it's really, it's really, it's really spooky, you know, like, I mean, practically everyone I know is like just this, you look at anybody, you know, like <laughs> just take a good look at someone when you're just, you know, in the store next time or whatever, just look at someone even if, or a friend, like they're so, um, there's a level of like tension and mind racing and like darting focus that they have, you know, like people's, the, you know, the pinhole of their awareness is so fractured and, and scattered because of just the repetition of their daily, you know, lives and whatever. But man, yeah, most people are, people are just so like tweaked and, um, doing some type of breathing practice, even the most like basic possible, which is nothing wrong with basic. I mean, basic is great because it, it works, you know, um, and it's foolproof, uh, you know, that helps people begin to just offload some of that stuff. Because if you think about like, think about like, if you hold like a weight in your hand or something and you hold like a 50 pound weight or, you know, dumbbell and you hold it for like as long as you can and then keep going and then go into God of war mode and then keep holding it, you know, and like, think about how, you know, your forearm is like screaming and burning and burning and burning until you can't take it up anymore. And then it just like your hand cramps and you drop it and your arm is like tweaked out. And, you know, that's basically like people are just, their whole bodies are that forearm. They're just tense with the anxiety of the day and, and their minds and like everything, something that happened to them 20 years ago, you know, they're still like uh, you know, bound up from that. They haven't shaken that off yet. And so if you can get them to relax then hell yeah, they go to sleep because they're like, oh my God, I'm actually like, you know, letting go for, for the one time, you know, the first time, mm. a lot of cases. Yeah. What you're describing sounds like suffering and, and that's, it seems like how a lot of people are operating in the day to day and you yourself, you described your own experience as suffering when you were in your teens, maybe, or, or around then. And I was listening to Ram Das last night speak about how suffering, the point of suffering is closest to the point of awakening. And I just found that fascinating. I never really stopped to consider it and why that might be. Because if you're, if you're suffering, you really have no other option but to let go and be. Right. So, yeah, take me through your experience of how suffering led to greater awareness. Yeah, yeah, and that's a that's a great quote, and I think that that's a um, comes from the Gospel of Sri Ramani Krishna. I could be wrong, but where he says that I'm never uh, closer to God than whenever I'm basically in immense pain, you know. Yeah, um, and that's emotional pain or physical pain, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think that little mechanism that quote is speaking to the fact that that like life is is challenging and it's always going to be full of tension and anxiety and problems and whatever and people naturally take the path of least resistance because they're trying to conserve energy because we're animals and we do we, we you know we're wired to conserve as much energy as possible that's why like a lion lays around for 3 days before it goes and kills something because it's, it's trying to like rest so that it can go kill something you know and so we're always trying to conserve energy um, and even just like sitting on the couch, your even your brain functioning burns. It's like you know, it's like a light bulb up there. It burns intellectual, you know, power and energy. 
And so we try and not think, you know, try and not think, think about things and just like kind of zone out. Um, and so, you know, what typically happens is that whenever we, uh, an external intervention, something outside of our choosing, something in life happens to us, not that we, you know, cause we're being passive. We don't choose to go, you know, get into a situation, but something traumatic or just something, you know, that really sucks. It doesn't have to be traumatic happens. That's whenever you're thrown off balance and you're like, oh man, I, now I have to focus on this and I have to deal with this and I gotta, and that's what that quote is about. And so if you're in basically a hell state, you're going to be doing a lot of work to get out of that hell state. But if you're not in a hell state, you're not going to be having the same fury and the same, you know, energy and drive to get out of that, you know? And you asked how it worked for me. I mean, I guess I was quote unquote unlucky, you know, <laughs> but is that I just was um, like in a perpetual hell state, you know? And so I had that, that, um, that fire to get out of there um, from a very young age and also, um, at the same time, and you know, another part of it is like, you know, my parents separated when I was very young, when I was a little kid. And I remember thinking like, uh, like I, I don't have anyone to show me the world. Mm -hmm. And so if I need to like understand how the world works, I have to figure it out. And I'm kind of like gonna, you know, be damned to just like sit around and just let life happen to me. I'm going to take control of this and like, you know, make it happen on my, my own. And I think that that's where the combination of like the kind of the, the suffering, the frustration with it, the, my like natural anti, like anti-authoritarianism against the bullshit, you know, that's happening. Um, because also I could see another, other ways of life. I mean, that was the big thing is it's like, no, I know this isn't what life is. And like no, nothing is what life is other than what you make it to be, you know? And so that mixed with this notion of like, well, I'm going to have to be the one to hack to the jungle. So let's get to it, you know? And all that stuff, it's kind of, um, you know, how that path began being traversed. What's been your relationship with mentors? Because I could see when, if you were young and had no one to guide you, you could be looking for one or you could be pushing away um, the idea of mentorship. What what is what role have mentors played in your life? Yeah, I was always very against mentors that were tangible because of like I looked at at like quote unquote God figures. You know, your parents when you were a kid are like the God figures. Um, I looked at those as false prophets, you know, and so I was like, well, a mentor is going to be another person that's just full of shit, you know, and it's going to be, and I can figure this out myself. Like I don't need, you know, I don't need them. Um, and so I would make my mentors intangibles. I would make them musicians, authors, philosophers. So I, like I worshiped like Nietzsche and Miles Davis and, you know, people like that whenever I was younger, like literally I'd like, you know, posters of them, you know, thing. And like, I would just, I, they were kind of like my weird, uh, you know, like the weird parental mentor gods that I created in my mind. And I realized that I was at a certain point, I realized that was a type of idolatration where I was like making them these things that they weren't as kind of this, like, if only I could be that great of a musician or that great of a philosopher or whatever. Um, but so I've, I've never had a proper mentor, but I have had a handful, a really small handful of people in my life that have been important in um, really more than anything, 
like just getting me to like cut the cut the shit as like a young person, you know, and like introducing me to some other things I wouldn't have kind of couldn't have really got to. Um, one friend, when I was eighteen, I, I met a, a friend. I was working in a bookstore, and he was, you know, twenty years or no thirty years older than me at that time, but a real cool guy, like a, a savant with literature and stuff like that. And just also, he was like an ex hippie, so he turned me on to all sorts of, you know, like like William Burroughs and and all this stuff like that, you know, and then all this literature stuff and different ways of thinking. And he was very into Zen, you know, and so he helped open a lot of doors to different things. Um, and then I had uh, whenever I was uh, twenty four or five or something, I uh, was you know already composing music then, and I won. Uh, I was selected for a month long residency at this place to basically, they would have like master artists that you could apply to study under and you would stay there for like one month at this place and study every day with this master artist. And so you know, it was like a worldwide, you know, call for works or whatever. So I submitted this proposal that was just probably stupid and insane. And uh, I got picked by another artist, this a, a German artist named Carson Nikolai, who's incredible. He actually, uh, if you're, familiar with that movie the revenant he composed the soundtrack to the revenant um uh but anyway like his work is amazing so i applied to him i went there and then there was one of the other master artists was a guy named john f simon jr who's been on my podcast a bunch of times and we just like you know we just hit it off in this weird way i mean he was again he's like 20 years older than i am or something but um i really knew he was going to be a good kind of like um teacher for me whenever at the beginning of the first day with this residency, there's all these artists from all around the world and we all have to like show whatever our, our piece was that we submitted. So like I had made this crazy piece of music that was like noisy, static and like super intellectual, you know, whatever. And so I played that and then, and then he came up afterwards. And he's like, I hear a lot of Miles Davis in that. And I was like, dude, what in the world? <laughs> How? And he's like, yes, yeah, it's, it's a negative space. And I was like, all right, we're going to be friends, you know, <laughs> and if you can hear it in that, then, um, but yeah, he, you know, he just was, was cool. And like, he, we're still in touch, you know, um, we you know, I've seen him here and there and, uh, he's an incredible human. And at that time he really helped me like just focus. Cause I had all that energy that I said that was coming through where I was like, bah, I have like a, you know, like a, I used to say that like my, um, the meat on my body was mine, but my skeleton was possessed. Like, I just felt like I was just so insanely driven to like do what I was trying to do. It was really, it was unhealthy, honestly, you know, but the level where I was at with it. Um, but he really helped me like focus that and, you know, kind of grow up a little bit and see the game a bit more clearly because even at that time, like I had no, a, a successful creative person takes uh, an artistic mind and also a business mind and then a social mind to understand how the relationships and the timing of those type of things work, you know, and all three of those things have to be working together. Um, if you want to be successful, you know, relatively in your lifetime or, or, you know, have any type of profession at it. And I was just purely in the creative space, like just going like in the black hole, like with it. And he was like, okay, you have to learn how to like talk to people and like, you know, focus and like have a plan and all this stuff. And so anyway, he was a, a very helpful mentor and continues to be, I, you know, I still talk to him and he's one of the few people I could think of in the entire world that like, um, I think it's because of a lot of what we just, we've discussed, but like whenever people compliment me, it doesn't, I appreciate it, but it doesn't, I don't feel anything, 
because I, you know, it's a combination of like, well, I know that, you know, who I really am, which I mean, I am who I really am, but you know, like I'm just a, you know, an idiot like everyone else. And I appreciate that what, whatever it is that I've done has been useful to you, but it's not me. Like I just did a thing and the user of the thing is the one that should be getting complimented. In my opinion, it's like, you're the one that read the thing that I wrote and were able to like abstract something from it meaningful to you and then to like apply it to your life. Like I, I'm impressed by you that you did it, you know? Um, so that was sort of like a disarming mechanism at first because when I first started, uh, like doing stuff publicly, I really was trying to make sure that like I, my, you know, I didn't, um, my ego wasn't swayed by any of the, the stuff. Um, and, uh, so anyway, um, yeah, but he is one of the few people, uh, all that to say, he's one of the few people whenever he tells me, he still tells me that he's proud of me. And it actually it does, it is touching to me. It means something because he's known me for 20, almost 20 years at this point and like seen me through, you know? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing. I always, are you familiar with Derek Sivers being in the music world? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and also meditation world, they're mindful, kind of. Derek Sivers has this great thing where it's like if somebody compliments you, just say thank you. Yeah, exactly. And, and totally. that struck me when I was like, I, I don't know, I read that maybe 10 years ago or a, a long time ago. And I always kept it in mind because it's so simple. And I think he got that because he went on tours with a bunch of bands and the bands didn't know what to say when somebody came up to them and was like, oh, amazing music. And you realize that the best thing is just to say thank you. And absolutely. it's powerful, right? Yeah, absolutely. It took me forever to learn that, you know, because I used to try and wiggle out of it, you know, whenever someone's complimenting me, I'd say something like uh, weird to like, I'd say something abstract to like make the situation confusing and then I'd make a joke about it and then we could like move on away from the compliment, you know, um, little smoke and mirrors. But yeah, it finally realized just say thanks and then, you know, you know, then it's it's all good. But that weird, that thing is weird. Like it is still... Um, yeah, it is weird to like have people telling you, you know, a stranger giving you a compliment. It's a strange thing. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a good question. I, I think because I, I still don't feel like I've done anything that's like worth complimenting, you know, and like what I what I've done, what I, I don't like value. I don't know. I don't think about. I don't ever go around thinking about myself as someone who's accomplish anything i don't go around thinking about myself as someone who uh, knows anything i just am a a you know a mind an observer that's moving through a set of experiences you know in the moment that i'm experiencing them with great appreciation and um depth to what i experience and whenever someone is coming with a compliment or something um it really doesn't fit into the world in which I see myself, you know, they see me as someone who is, you know, has shared an insight with them or something that has changed the way that they think about, you know, their experience. And that is my goal, but it's not what I think about. I don't go around thinking about myself as that, right? I think about like all this shit is, I think about, it's because it's stuff I've experienced and thoughts I've come up with that have helped me over the over the years. And I think that if I could share those, it's like map sharing where they'll get through the train a little faster. But I don't ever think like, 
and now I'm owed because of that. It's like, I just do right. it because it's just what I do. It's like, I don't know. Why do you do anything? I don't know how I do it. I don't know why I do it. I just do it because it feels right, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to put it in an analogy that might make sense is like, imagine you start lifting weights and you start lifting weights because you you need to or you want to and you enjoy doing it and you become really proficient at it and you become jacked and everyone can see you're jacked. And then all of a sudden somebody comes along and takes that inspiration from your body and is like, I want to look like that too. And then they start going on their own journey and that helps them because you taught them a movement. Your intention was never to to impact them in their experience in that way. However, as a result of what you naturally did, it did impact them and it did make a difference. And I think that, you know, your presence in terms of how you operate and and the work you've done on yourself comes through. And even though it's not your intention, it made me look at the world slightly different. And I'm sure if people are listening and really paying attention, they might say, huh, that's interesting. Why, what's going on there? And that might lead to changes in their own life as well. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so because, I mean, that's that's my, my – I was trying to will down my goals for my work like to as few words as possible hmm. and I won't be able to calm down and wake up. That's the whole thing. Everyone <laughs> calm down and pay attention. <laughs> like that's that's it. You know, so if that happens, then then good. But, well, you know, you, you have a great quote on that topic, calm people, calm people. Mm-hmm. What's that's that about? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's like you think about um, most people have a, a general, and this is part kind of evolutionary, you know, psychology and learned behavior, but people change how they're feeling and how they're acting based on who they're around. Like, you know, you think if you go to a party and everyone's, you know, super lit and it's people are going to be like, yeah, and they're going to, you know, change their vibe. They wouldn't be acting like that if they were home alone, like making dinner or whatever. You know, it's like a different energy, you know. Um, And if you're on the subway and there's someone who is, you know, really tweaked out and has like a violent, aggressive, like chaotic energy, you're going to get tense. You're going to get freaked out. You're going to feel chaotic, whatever. Um, And then if you're around someone that's really chill, uh, then you're going to feel that way, too. And, um, you know, if you... You know, so if you are a calm person, if you do things to just you know blow off some of that that steam and get comfortable into yourself and get present and you know get some clarity, then people will feel that. And you know, that's the whole again. That's like like with Gandhi's thing of like I you know you want to be the be the change you want to see in the world. You know my life is my teaching. Any of his quotes about that. That's what he's talking about. Is like. It's obviously wise. You know, did you know that Gandhi was wise? No, it's obviously wise because like, uh, that you know, like, man, that people, I've learned this from like just teaching a lot of, you know, in-person classes, of course, doing podcasts for six or seven years and reaching millions of people and then hearing from them all, you know, is that like, uh, you, which I appreciate, you know, um, is that people don't really... You, you can't teach anybody anything. You can set up a a situation in which they can discover something for themselves, right? And because a, a person has to, again, back to that sort of that passivity thing, for a real insight to integrate into someone's mind to a degree to where it is a key that opens one of those locks. 
they has to be their hand that turns that key. So I could, you know, tell somebody all day about, you know, the Satipatthana Sutra or something like that from the Pali Canon, and it would just sound like, they might sound cool, like, that's beautiful noise, Corey, thank you, you know, and I've my pleasure, happy to share it, you know. But it's not going to mean anything to them unless they go look at it themselves, or maybe something I told them about it makes them think, oh, that's interesting, I'm going to go read about it. And then they read about it, and they put two and two together. That's how insights happen. That's why Zen poems are so cool. That's like whenever, you know, Zen, whenever, or Zen koans, you know. Uh, for anyone that's not familiar, it's basically a small Zen poem that is meant to cause an insight or cause kind of a, a form of enlightenment in someone. Um, and the reason why those work, the reason why I like them too, is because they're set up like that. They're designed like that. They they are often contradictory. They often intentionally don't make sense. Like you can't square the logic in them. But they're designed like that because one piece fits in one way, one piece of the logic or whatever fits in a different way. And by reconciling the two, that the act of reconciling forces you to have the the to be the one that creates the connection. Therefore, you have created the insight for yourself and it becomes a self-teaching tool. Like, I don't remember who did the quote, but the ability to hold two things in your mind at the same time and have it make sense is a sign of intelligence. I don't, who, sure. is that? Yeah, it sounds familiar. That, that, it's, that's what it Checks out. Is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm asking that as a question because I'm like, what is the exact quote? But um, about about the Zen poems, would the Tao Te Ching be an example of that? Uh, yeah, sure. It, it's not a, like yeah. a straight up one, but yeah, it's a it's in the neighborhood of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at like the the gateless gate, um, that's like a name of one. You know, that is really really nice. Um, but the Tao Te Ching definitely has got some of the action going in there. That was really the first like the the first text that really started it all, pretty much the Tao Te Ching, which is why it's so awesome. You know. Well. You mentioned before about how when you were young, you would go and you didn't have Google. So you went from <laughs> one resource to the next. What what are some resources for, for somebody who's just on on this wavelength or just hears you and wants to explore more? Like, where would you recommend somebody start or like what resources other than your podcast or all, like external resources? Yeah, I mean, I, the, obviously the podcast is good, but um, I mainly talk about like the podcast is more rooted in kind of consciousness uh, and uh, punching del- like in a nuanced way, punching a lot of the the buttons, the meta programming buttons in someone's minds to get them to sort of realize things about themselves. You know, um, it's like a backdoor teaching tool is the way I look at the podcast. Mm. <laughs> like we're talking about stuff, but I'm assuming and I want the listener to be like hearing it and then to have something sort of click and for them to think about it themselves and then have, you know, it, to create some change at some point. But I mean, my book is a good, a good resource because I really tried to, to lay it out for anyone of any level. So like a, a beginner or someone, cause it's, it's, everything every sentence pretty much is written in a layered way to where if you're a beginner it's going to mean one thing to you and if you're very advanced it's going to mean something else to you and so i kind of wrote it like that to where uh you know that way anyone could could use it um so that's a really good source um outside of that um yeah i mean i guess like it's not really like 
there's a lot of different options of how if you want to get into meditation or mindfulness. Obviously, all the, there's tons of classic books out there. You can you know Google meditation and find a, a tons of guided meditations or whatever it is. Um, and that stuff's all cool. You know, it's all again, it's all sort of like language to help one carve out an understanding of what it is more. But my my <laughs> my suggestion for the best teacher that you can find is just your own mind. Yeah. You know, so if you start watching your own mind, that's really going to be your best teacher. And what's cool is you'll never outshine it. You know, you'll never, you know, graduate. Um, I would say that someone want, is if someone wants to get interested in this and start like looking for a resource. Well, look for the resource within, and just consistently for five to ten minutes a day, start your day or end your day, whatever, by doing like lower the stakes, forget everything you've been told or you think is supposed to be meditation or whatever, any of what we're talking about, forget all that. And just close your eyes and just count, you know, observe your, your breath going in and going out. And if you get too tweaked out, then even add sitting in there as a variable so that even the silence isn't scary. So you can breathing in, now I'm breathing out and I'm sitting, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm sitting. And just trying to kind of relax your face and your shoulders as you're doing that. And just do that for five to ten minutes a day with no goal in mind, no stakes, no, no expectations, no nothing. Just try that and just start noticing what happens. Start noticing that after a week, two weeks, you're like, hmm, I normally would be a little bit more tense in this situation, but I feel a little bit calmer. Or you're talking to someone and you're about to like make some, you know, comment that's negative or whatever. And you just notice that you're about to make it before you make it instead of like making it and then being like, ooh, I kind of feel like an asshole. You notice it's coming and you're like, hmm, I actually don't have to say that if I don't want, you know, all right, well, I'll just put that back into the void from which it came, you know. And you just slow, like, continue progressing that, continue kind of following your instincts. And you can just do that essentially for a lifetime. <laughs> Why do you think people who meditate become kinder? Oh, I, I think just it's a raise of self-awareness, you know, and it's not always the case, but generally. Um, <laughs> do you know of any of examples when that's not true? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, have you ever seen the show Billions before? Like the 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 main guy is like this sociopathic hedge fund owner that he meditates for 15 minutes a day so that he can like have a clear mind to like game, you know, to use game theory to ruin everyone, you know? So there's certainly every, everything is, everything's possible. Um, but generally, um, you know, whenever one becomes more self-aware, they're more aware of, you know, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, they become more aware of the world outside of themselves and they realize that, oh, hold on a second, everyone else has the same complicated, you know, human thing happening inside of them that I do inside of me. And it just gives you a bit more space, a bit more awareness of like that you're another human being is going through human experience alongside with you. And it makes you realize that, you know, hey, we should probably just all like try and be cool and be kinder to each other because, you know, we're all experiencing the same thing. It's tough being a human, you know, um, and uh, I think that just having more awareness of that just makes people honor it more. What a beautiful conversation. What a beautiful place to come to a close. I'm so grateful. I mean, there's so much stuff I want to talk to you about, but uh, we'll have to do a part two sometime because this this was a 
tremendous experience and I'm grateful for you and you taking the time. So thank you, Corey. No problem, man. Thank you. It was a good time. I'm happy to come back. And uh, yeah, maybe next time I'll try not give such long answers and be able to get through more stuff. <laughs> no, it was great. Keep being you. Nice. Thank you for listening to that episode with Corey Allen. If you have any thoughts or feedback about that one, I, there was so much stuff that I wanted to talk to Corey about and there I didn't get a chance to because we just went into a different direction. So hopefully he'll come back and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you thought about that episode at Hey Danny Miranda. And if you so choose and would like to share it with a friend, that would also mean a lot to me. Thank you for listening and I will see you in the next episode. Peace.